Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the ASCA Viewpoints podcast, the podcast where we talk the student conduct profession in higher education. I am your host, Dr. Alexandra E. Hughes, and we are back. It's season five. It's a new school year. I'm excited. I hope you're excited. We have a lot of amazing things coming. Um, Yeah, a lot's gone on. I hope your summer was restful. (laughs) Who am I kidding? You work in student affairs and higher education. You probably didn't get rest. You probably need rest. yeah, as I say that and I hear the words coming out of my mouth, I have to I have to laugh at that. Anyways, <laughs> I digress. I hope that you are able to find pockets of rest in no matter what it is that you have done. If you had the time this summer, <clears throat> I'm so glad to hear that. If you unfortunately did not have the chance to step away, I hope that you can find pockets of peace and rest in whatever way facet, if it's an hour, if it's a conversation, if it's something, because trust me, you need it as a professional in this field. I am excited to be back for this school year. Uh, This is going to be, (laughs) I feel like every time I get on here, I say it's going to be something like unlike any other. But the truth of the matter is it, it is. We are opening schools back. It has been a little different because last year we were opening in a hybrid manner This year, the majority of institutions are in person because of COVID. Lots of things, lots of mandates. I'm not getting into vaccines and mandates or any of that stuff on this episode. Not doing it. I want something that's not COVID related, if you really want to know the truth. Uh, And I'm sure that you do as well. Nevertheless, however you are opening up the school year, I wish you all all of the luck in the world. Um, For today's episode, we are going to do a couple things. Number one, we're going to talk about something that some of us remember and probably have horror stories from years ago that is back right before the beginning of the school year. We're so excited to hear about it, as well as we are going to get into a little bit of text uh, from one of the uh, books that we recommend here at ASCA called Conduct and Community, which is actually a resident's life practitioner's guide. I really think it will help in thinking about yik yak and this whole thing that we're getting ready to talk about. So I just kind of wanted to throw it out there. So I'm excited. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. And as always, feel free to connect. Um, You know, I'm always going to say that because we're in a social media world and that's exciting. So here we are. Yik yak. I said it. I know I probably shouldn't say it three times fast because somebody's probably going to say, why did you invoke it? But it's invoked. It's back. And (laughs) what we remember from before with this (laughs) with this particular app. uh, Oh, my goodness. Okay, so let's back up. I really want to talk about this because it's been kind of going everywhere. I've had some people reaching out saying, "Okay, like, what is it? 
what do we do? How do we handle it? You know, those of us who were around for the first time that it came out. So let me back up. There is this social media app thing called Yik Yak. Okay. And it was around, I want to say in 2016, somewhere around there. Um, I don't think it was 20, was it 2015, 2014, somewhere, somewhere in that general year range right now, anything prior to 2020 and, you know, before wearing masks, I just honestly don't remember. Um, my, my frame of reference is 2020 and quite frankly, even last year is a blur, but nevertheless, it was around that area that there was this app and this app was really popular with college students. And the whole premise behind it was that you could announce uh, anonymous things, if you will, or it was almost like a like a Twitter, but it was an anonymous Twitter, if you will. Okay, theoretically. I guess it was fun for students, for people as a professional. I can't necessarily say that it was fun, but it was anonymous. You could post things. You could find out what's going on on campus, I guess, in particular areas. And it was region specific, like location specific. And so I remember that being like a thing. So if you were at one institution, say in, um, I don't know, uh, in Texas, if you went to another institution in New York or another location in New York, it would pull up the things in that particular area. And so that was kind of the the thing. It was like the location specific um, kind of thing. Now <laughs> it's back. So we'll see how much it's changed, not changed, don't know. But what do we remember from the first round? Now, I do remember that it was taken down. And I'm, as you can see, I'm slowly like kind of working through this in my head. I don't know the reason why it was off the market or taken down. I, I didn't care, didn't ask questions. It was exciting. I don't know if it's available to iPhones and Androids and all these other things, whatever. But for the most part, I know it's back in the iOS store. And so because it was anonymous, students were posting things on it, sharing about information, parties, rumors, whatever. I do remember that <laughs> there were some institutions in which there were some students or people, I'm going to say, that I believe made threats, if I remember correctly, something like that in which authorities did have to step in because even though things are anonymous, we know that like it's really not anonymous. And so I think that there were ways, of course, like with all apps and Snapchats and Twitters and Instagrams and social medias, I do believe there was a way that some authorities went in and were able to find out where and who said what. I don't know if they've changed that. I don't know if it's even possible to change that because I don't understand how any of that stuff works. Um, I just assume that everything is trackable on the internet, which is probably the smartest thing to do at this point. But nevertheless, it did enlighten us on situations and things that were happening. Now, 
I've had a few people ask me, do you think that we should tell people that we are monitoring Yik Yak? My personal advice, and I say personal because everyone is going to have a different opinion, is that I personally don't think that you should say that you're monitoring Yik Yak because like all social media platforms, when an institution or a uh, authority figure or an official at an institution says that we are watching a certain platform, then there is an expectation and almost responsibility that you will address things. So (laughs) I definitely do not think that you should say it, that you should monitor it in that sense, um, or even make the expectations of say resident assistance or anything else that that's going to happen. Okay. Now here's the flip side to it. There's only so much you can do because it's really not a proactive app. It's more of a reactive app, if you will, but it is a really good way to get a pulse on the institution in general. So realizing what is happening, what students are talking about, and the fact that most things are reactive, that can most likely lead to really good programming. So what I mean by that is, if you know that on this app, they're talking about um, issues that need to be addressed, such as drugs, um, I don't know, uh, parties, somebody who, I don't know, three o'clock in the morning and they're loud or something like that, you then can address things like drug policies, COVID policies, right? Visitation hours and policies um, that may need to be addressed at the institution or in maybe residence life or in a particular area that you can kind of be on the lookout for, uh, I would say. Um That's really kind of the most you can do (laughs) if you really want to know the truth. Um, I'm pausing and thinking about this just as I talk, because really that was kind of what we were dealing with and going through at the time. It was really a reactive thing. Uh, I can admit, I know for me, I had the app because I was trying to watch and see what was going on. I was working in res life, I remember, um, for a part of it. And so, uh, you know, you're trying to watch, you're trying to see what's going on, you're trying to understand, you're trying to kind of have, you know, just an idea, which is why I think a lot of us get on the apps anyways. That's why I got on TikTok at the beginning of COVID and I stayed on TikTok because Amazon tells me the things that I need to buy. <laughs> but nevertheless, uh, it's a good way to know what's going on. You know, if obviously if there's some type of violence, if there's some type of um, criminal aspect or legal aspect to it, it's good to be able to Uh, go to the police. But even with that, I think there was only so much that the police can do. So I said all that to say it's probably (laughs) everything I said, it's probably not very helpful. But from someone who went through it years ago, I think the best thing you can do is really just not stress over it. 
if something comes to your attention, like anything else, you know, address it. Remember safety, security, uh, and then use it as a way to keep a pulse on what programming looks like. I really... I really think that's the best that you can do, you know, have the conversations with your staff, with the uh, people around you. But I really think that's really it um, for the most part. So, yeah, we will see. We will see uh, what happens with that, how it goes. I think as campus starts, we'll even see if it's something that is popular the reality is with the new generation of students, it may not even be something that is popular for them and it may just die down or it may not be something that is even worth uh, stressing over because really nothing happens on it. So we will just keep a lookout and I will be sure to update you (laughs) in the future as we see what's happening. So yeah, that's the, (laughs) that's the information or advice that I have for that right now. Um, when it comes to, when it comes to that, and I actually think that I feel like we had like RAs or people like they were posting stuff like, Hey, you should know this. I, I would not encourage anyone to do that. I just, I feel like when, when it came out initially, we were just trying to figure out ways that we could curtail, uh, policy violations. And so we were trying different things, but anyways, like I said, just see what happens. Cause that's the most that you can do. Like you, anything else that comes around with TikTok, Snapchat, Twitter, Instagram, anything. So that's the Yik Yak update. Uh, And we will take a break really quickly and uh, be back in a few. And we are back. So I... (laughs) Uh, I may start a book club. Um, I'm not promising anything, but uh, I've been doing a lot of reading lately. And there are some really good books with a lot of good information um, and some segments that I really wanted to make sure that we are highlighting on the show when it comes to information um, that leaders have really put out in our field. So from... One of the books, it's called Conduct and Community, A Residence Life Practitioner's Guide. It was edited by Jacinda Hudson, Alan Acosta, and Ryan C. Holmes. Um, And it's a book that we actually offer and you can buy from the store um, with ASC. I promise this is not a plug for the book. I mean, it kind of is, but it's a really good book, but (laughs) I think it's really helpful. Anyways, I want to read... Uh, a segment from the book or from the text. It's a few pages. So I guess this is going to be kind of like an audio book if you're prepared for that. And I really want to just remind us of a few things. And I think the text honestly says it the best. So that's why I figured that I would read it uh, and just give you some information that I really want you to consider. Uh, This is focused more so on conduct and within residence life, but it's really something that applies to conduct overall. 
And I think as we are opening up our schools and uh, new RAs are coming in and training and possibly old RAs as well. And just remembering all the things that we have to do when we are in person in light of new changes that we have with this new world that we live in, living in a pandemic. I just want us to remember some of these things because I think it'll be really helpful. So on page nine of the text in the actual, it's in the, it's in the first chapter, which is actually titled establishing and building community. And it's page nine of the text. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read some of the, a couple excerpts, and then I'm going to kind of skip around. This is from page nine to page about 15. That's how you know I'm in student conduct because I'm trying to make sure that you know where I'm getting stuff from and I'm citing my sources because I will not be found responsible for academic misconduct, (laughs) okay? Um, I'm giving you page numbers and everything. But I'm gonna cite a couple things and then I'm gonna kind of let you know what I'm reading and then just give you kind of some excerpts because I really think it really... Uh, hones in on some of the things that I want us to make sure that we're remembering when it comes to conduct our students and just as we move back in and get back used to living with each other. So this is titled Factors Affecting the Residential Community. Consider the following scenario. A resident assistant approaches a residence hall room and knocks on a door vibrating from the loud music playing inside. A student answers the knock and peers around the corner of the door. The RA says, hey there, I'm an RA and we have a quiet hours policy. Can you please turn down your music? Without saying a word, the student slams the door shut. The RA, understandably, becomes irritated and knocks again. This time, when the door is answered, the RA barks. I'm going to have to document this incident. Such a scene is not uncommon in campus residence halls. One still may wonder what would lead the student to react in such a way. The fact is students do not arrive in residence life as blank slates. They bring personalities, identities, ideas, values, and notions of community formed throughout their earlier lives and everything they have experienced up to that point. Some of them come from large urban cities, while others are from rural areas. Some arrive on move-in day by themselves with only the bare necessities, while others show up with a moving truck, full wardrobe, and flat screen television. Some students are eager to befriend their roommates, while others plan to get into a single room as soon as possible. New students face situations as simple as never having had to do their own laundry to the much more complex of never having lived where no one else speaks their native language. All of these qualities and circumstances are not in and of themselves positive or negative, but they certainly do play a role in a student's individual sense of identity. And these differences will have an impact on the community's collective identity. Visible and invisible diversity are part of campus communities. Professional and paraprofessional staff may have to address certain beliefs and values that may harm or enhance the student's progress on campus. Without looking to degrade students' former community identities, 
staff have to be aware of these beliefs and values as the new residential community develops. To assist with including underrepresented students in the residence halls, social justice and diversity training, along with several other concepts, should be incorporated in trainings and developments for all staff. All right, I'm going to skip some lines. And the book then goes on to explain some reasons why that student may have shut the door. And I want to share some of them. One of them talks about the distrust of authority. And I really want us to remember that this applies to more than just the student conduct uh, authority figures, but all of us in this role, right? Their very first day on campus, students are usually met by cheerful and welcoming staff members, handing out keys, giving instructions, and directing move-in traffic to stairs and elevators. Oh, I remember those days. Okay. Back to the text. Signs advertise mandatory meetings for residents, invite them to social activities, and educate them about policies. All students are expected to respect the policies and expectations of their new home, regardless of whether these are are or are not similar to expectations set before coming to college. Some of the violations that occur in these early days can be explained reasonably. The students are expecting their first days of freedom away from watchful parents, flexing their desire to have the quote unquote real college experience or feeling the pressure of wanting to meet and fit in with others. A common example is accepting an invitation to drink in a residence hall room. Some students, understandably, will ignore the mandatory student meeting requests, be barely polite when the student staff introduces themselves at check-in, and seem to want to have nothing to do with the community building. Again, part of this is the desire to fit in, wanting to look as though they have adjusted to the college experience and do not need anyone looking after them. There is a difference, though, between those students and students who come in with a distrust of authority for valid reasons. Distrustful students may have come from communities where authority is seen as unfair, unjust, or even violent. They may have come from communities where there were active uprisings against those in power. Some students come from homes where there was no authority or the authority was negative, neglectful, or abusive. They may also have come from homes where they were the authority because they had to take care of younger siblings or aging family members and faced a great deal of responsibility as young adults. Finally, and perhaps most significantly, students of color, international students, or underrepresented students may have a distrust of authority based on their experiences with systemic racism and oppression. So... For students who distrust authority, the act of an RA knocking on the door and asking for the music to be turned down can have a deeper meaning. It could escalate as an opportunity to assert their autonomy or protest a policy they find unfair or simply be a typical response to being told what to do and when to do it, particularly by someone who is the same age. An RA untrained in considering identities may perceive this situation as a student who needs an even stronger authoritative response. The approach of the RA could potentially create an even more hostile environment for the student. The text then continues to go on 
And it talks about things um, such as community policing models, as well as uh, codes of silence and support. And it says that some students come to campus with the ingrained belief one does not speak up against someone of the same identity or, quote unquote, snitch on others from home. Others are on campus when there is a pronounced mistrust in society, or perhaps in the particular geographic area where the college is located, of individuals of their ethnicity. Um, and it says, consider the Muslim student in post 9-11 America as just one example. Is it possible a student feels targeted by authority and is responding to that? Absolutely. Silence can be extremely detrimental to a community for many reasons. First, continued mistrust of authority means students are much less likely to seek help with other issues, whether that's academic, personal, etc. Second, if violations occur repeatedly in a community, they do not have to be addressed, even though an even tougher response from staff may only reinforce these students' silence. Finally, and most alarmingly, students may not report serious, dangerous violations if they think doing so puts a member of their own community at risk. Okay? I share that because although this context is in the context of a uh, conduct officer or, excuse me, a resident's life uh, professional or paraprofessional, I really think about that when it comes to the idea of um, codes of silence and support when it comes to witness statements and testimonies and why we get into this conversation, which is a further conversation around why is it that when we're asking students to uphold the honor policy and, well, why didn't you leave when you saw there was alcohol or why didn't you, um, you know, let us know that, you know, or, or let the RE know that there was alcohol in a room or we're calling you as a witness to a situation and you're not responding. As professionals, we can now look back on these situations and realize that, hey, if someone's, you know, in a group chat and they're sharing the answers, you need to let us know. Like that's part of our honor code. That's the part of what it, you know, it means to be a student at our institution. But when we think back to our 17, 18 year old selves and put our minds, a lot of times our policies say doing what a reasonable person would do, a lot of times I had to remind myself as a professional, my reasonable person idea as a whole adult that is responsible for a house and families and cars and life and <laughs> adulting looks at that responsible piece in a different way than maybe my 17-year-old or 18-year-old self. And my 17-year-old or 18-year-old self, who's a freshman in college, may have very much so said, I mean, I'm not using the answers to that exam. So as long as I don't say anything in the group chat, as long as I don't look, as long as I'm not there, then I'm not snitching and I'm going to keep it moving. No, I'm not saying that's right. But what I'm saying is I fully understand why a student may give you that answer in a conduct hearing session. Right. So remember that as you're having those conversations. OK, now back to the text. 
The book then also uh, on page like 14 begins to talk about other things such as inclusive language and consistent confrontation when you're talking, uh, when your RAs or, you know, staff members are talking to students, um, looking at and addressing uh, the reality of students with different abilities and even goes on to talk about privilege. And so the last part that I want to read, which I really think hones in, says this. It says, um, think about the loud music interaction with a student who has always had strong parental support and has not been confronted for violations or who had parents who were able to advocate on their behalf. A student from that background may also have a disrespect for authority and may be more likely to have a parent involved with disciplinary issues to ask to consult an attorney or even just make the pronouncement of my parent is an attorney and expect that staff will not push the issue further. We've all probably been there. The student is also less likely to be deterred by sanctions of fines or restitution since these consequences will not have the same impact as they would on a student who is struggling with finances. Safety concerns can also stem from a privileged upbringing. A student who grew up in a community where they could leave their car or home unlocked, or they had easy access to safe parks and schools, is not going to have the same level of awareness in the community as students who grew up in less safe areas. Disrespect for authority may manifest itself with a privileged student as well, but in more of a mocking sense of, it's no big deal if I lend someone my keys. They may be less likely to take the conduct process seriously since their privilege may have protected them from harm or consequences in the past. Discussing with staff how to approach students wielding privilege is just as important as discussing how to approach students whose backgrounds did not provide that privilege. I think that statement is so incredibly true. And that's all that I'm reading from the book today, I promise. So thank you for for, for going uh, through that with me. But there's a lot of really good gems um, in just that small amount of text. And of course, with the last part, safety is a very interesting concept. Uh, student conduct practitioners, we talk about upholding the safety and the security of our campus members. And of course, in residence life, we did that as well. You know, one of the major things that I remember having signs all over res life for uh, was make sure you're shutting the doors, make sure you're not holding the doors open for people. And especially being in the South, I mean, one of the first things you're taught is always hold the door open for somebody, right? Like that is a that is a uh, a respect thing. It is, uh, you know, having that level of Southern hospitality, if you will, and just, you know, being having manners. Right. But it's hard to teach people and students that no, like don't hold the door for someone. You can't let someone in. And that, that, that becomes really hard. And, you know, propping the doors open, even in the hallways. One of the examples that I would give my RAs, and I think this would be great for, uh, if you're struggling with how to explain this as well for people is recognizing that every person comes from a different situation. 
There were often times that we'd get phone calls, as we all do, from parents who are worried because their child, little Sally, or little John, or whoever, has not come home or called home. And they want to know where the student is. And you've now gone to college. And now you have some freedom. And we need to make sure that you understand that you have responsibilities. And majority of the time, it's okay. Like majority of the time, it's not a big deal. The student's just not calling home. And we'd go to the student and be like, hey, call your parent, right? But every so often, what seems to some of us to be something very innocent, oh, my mother is asking where I am, is not always the case for everyone else. There are some people that have restraining orders against their parents. And so their parents are calling to the institution, expecting, you know, and even calling to the RA, the RA phone on duty or whatever it may be, expecting the level of quote unquote understanding that is probably true for the majority of us. Uh, that a parent or a parent figure or whoever it is may have. And they're expecting that, you know, that RA, that staff member, whoever will say, oh yeah, the student is here. But the reality is a student may have a restraining order against their parent for whatever situation. And so remembering that safety and what safety looks like for all of us is different based upon our own personal experiences. And so it may not seem obvious, but we have to remember that we can't assume what safety is or isn't for people. And I'll repeat that last line. Discussing with staff how to approach students wielding privilege is just as important as discussing how to approach students whose backgrounds do not provide that privilege. I think there's this assumption that people are going to understand why you shouldn't leave the door open or the doors propped open and making sure that you're locking your, your room door. But in fact, that's not always the case. And if you have two students that come from different backgrounds, this who are just say roommates, that can provide a level of confrontation and conflict because one forgets to lock their room door. It's not because, and I've learned this, it's not because they don't think, let me rephrase that. It's not because they're trying to be honorary or not hold the locking door policy. It's more so they grew up in a place or they live in a place where if they didn't lock their door, nothing bad would happen. Uh, if you've lived in a place where you have forgotten, quote unquote, to close your garage door and come out hours later and you're like, oh my goodness, I didn't even realize that my garage door was open and it's been eight hours and nothing's gone. It's a very different environment than someone who grew up in a place that is concerned about walking from you know their front door to the corner. So just remember that. Remember that in your conversations. Remember that when we are training our staff, when we are 
choosing to have these conversations in our offices. Um, if you are interested in reading more, uh, again, this particular segment came from the Conduct and Community book. Um, you can find it on our ASCA bookstore. There's a lot of really good information in there that really is applicable to all types of situations. So yeah, if you want to find out more, you can go there to get that. But just remember those things as we move in, as we are engaging with our students, as they are coming to our office because they've all decided the first week to live their best lives, if you will, because they have been in the house for 17 months. <laughs> um, I hope that you were able to take something away from this episode and something uh, stuck out to you. If you did, please feel free to tag uh, me in whatever that is on social media. Please, please, please share this episode with someone you think uh, who may need to hear this, whether we have just started in this field or whether we have been in this field for many, many years, I think it is good for us to be reminded of things because uh, we're all human. So with that, I hope that you have a wonderful rest of your week. Stay safe. And I look forward to connecting with you on the interwebs. Thank you for tuning into this episode. If you would like to connect with us at the ASCA Viewpoints Podcast, please feel free to reach out to us at ASCAPodcast at gmail.com or on social media on all of the platforms at ASCA Podcast. Please note that the information provided on this podcast does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. Instead, all information, content, and materials available in this episode are for general informational purposes only. If you want to or know someone that has a viewpoint that they want to share on the show, let us know. And if you want to connect with our host, Dr. Alexandra E. Hughes directly, you can reach her on social media at Dr. Underscore E. Hughes on all of the platforms. Thanks for tuning in.